and well, uh, not that sorry. This is Alpha Bunga Bunga, the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. Welcome to our dearest patrons and a hello to our new patrons. There's so many of you. It's so nice to see you. Thank you for joining. Thank you for contributing. Uh, we hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. This is another three articles. My name is Alex Hogeli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. George Moore is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Phil Cunliffe is in Sao Paulo, Brazil. This is a turn up for the books. We're all in the same place. This global politics podcast has become a little less global just now. Hi, guys. How's it going? It's good. Glad yeah. to be in Brazil. Very happy to be in Brazil. Yeah. And thanks to Alex for hosting us in his wonderful apartment in central Sao Paulo. Yeah, that's where that's where we're coming to you from. Uh, you guys are here because we're all working on the Alpha Bunga Bunga book. If you haven't read, we've just posted about it a little bit on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, we are working on the drafts of the Alpha Bunga book, Politics at the End of the End of History. More information will be forthcoming as it takes final shape. I'm really happy to be to be working on this and to kind of bring together all the ideas that we've been talking about on here for the past, what is it, like nearly three years, uh, and trying to actually give it a more maybe permanent form in, in text, you know, uh, not just not just podcasts. Yeah. People still read, so... It's good. While the, and while they still read, we're going to make them read what we have to say. Um, or, you know, if you'd like to read it, we'd love you to read it. Thank you. All right. So um, we're doing a three articles. Uh, regular listeners will know the format. It's we, we each. It's a, it's a bit of a show and tell. Uh, we each bring an article that we liked and wanted to discuss, uh, ideally on a kind of similar sort of theme. And today's theme is about freedom and democracy, but that's a little bit too grand, uh, a little bit too, those categories are a bit too big to really give you a sense of what this is about. But they're about uh, ideas of how to help democracy, how to reform democracy, how to limit democracy maybe, uh, and how democracy is linked with freedom. Anyway, I'm, I'm gonna stop uh, vamping here and actually we're gonna start. So uh, the first article we're gonna do is George's one. George, why don't you just talk us through what your article is? Yeah. And of course, uh, listeners, you can read all these articles. The links are in the show notes as per usual. All right. Sorry, George. Go ahead. Yeah. So um, I've selected an article from the American Conservative, um, a publication which our listeners will probably know extremely well from the 19th of February. Michael Bloomberg. Mike, are they all... American conservative readers. Uh, well, they're just so widely read. They have, they're Catholic in their tastes, so they read they read everything, I'm sure. Um, Michael Bloomberg's smirking id of America's elites. And this is a, it's a very good critique of, of, of Bloomberg. Um, so we're recording this on the 20th, so just after his not great debate performance. 20th of February. 20th of Feb, yeah, at the um, uh, Nevada um, debate. Um <clears throat> And of course, he's he's pumped in four hundred million plus of his of his own of his own funding, and this is an article by uh, by Matt Purple. Um, yeah, so a million more millions more on his staffing. So uh, yeah, so it's a good article. It's a, it's a good takedown from a conservative point of view of, of Michael Bloomberg, and particularly this idea that he's fiscally conservative and socially liberal, and this ends up. Uh, expressing itself through a sort of petty authoritarianism, but yeah, that's a, that's enough of a, of an intro, of a framing. What did you guys think of this um, of this article? I thought I really liked it because it, it 
complaints about petty authoritarianism, and I guess we should be clear what we mean by that. We mean yeah. things like smoking bans, life's lifestyle and behavior management, right? So mm-hmm. smoking, ta- smoking bans, taxes on fatty foods, all those kind of and random little fines for stupid behavior, which you know is annoying but is no big crime, right? Um, and normally articles arguing against that are really kind of kind of tedious libertarian ones, which just take a sort of individualist view, which go leave me the fuck alone. Yeah. Uh, and this has a social component because it's not just about that. It's about um, as a sort of social relation, understanding Michael Bloomberg and the, what he did in office in New York as fundamentally deeply patronizing and very class based as well, because mm-hmm. it's OK for him to drive his helicopter through New York and create a lot of noise. But he has ordinances saying you can't make noise and you get fined if you make noise, if you're just a normal little guy. So it's already clear. I guess, anatomy of his particular brand of paternalism. Um, public health campaigns, well, New York mayor against salt, against smoking, banning trans fats, big gulp, styrofoam food packaging, um, grass clippings, black roofs, um, energy inefficient taxis. But at the same time, as you said, Alex, he's, he's an entitled dickhead. He violated these noise regulations by landing his helicopter right in the centre of the city, apparently eight times in in uh, one one weekend so one rule for him and uh, one for one for others it's a great piece um i mean not only for the content but also for the style the kind of incredibly incredibly um restrained and yet effective um criticisms of bloomberg the and i think what's really good about it is that it makes clear just how much um the control and paternalism of the Bloomberg state when Bloomberg was mayor was a project of domination mm. and married also. So the fiscal conservatism was mar- was part of this project because it became um, a lot of the point of all of this control was partly uh, to remake New York's uh, finances. Mm. So a lot of finance, a lot of debts, a lot of uh, fines were collected through this. And the other point that it makes, which I think is also um, important, was that this was also part of the, the crackdown civil liberties as well. So the frisking, um, the enhanced frisking, particularly the profiling of racial um, racial minorities that became part of the Bloomberg mayoralty as well, and that has come up in the Nevada primary debate and in the discussion around it, was also part of this paternalistic project of policing, regulating all sorts of different lifestyle behaviours, fining people for all sorts of trivial, um, trivial things which they might do, collecting fines in that way and um, boosting New York City's finances in that way. So it's um, it's a tremendously powerful piece and I think all the more um, all the more effective perhaps because it comes from the American conservative itself and it targets that particular brand of paternalism, fiscally conservative, socially liberal paternalism that came out at the end of the at the end of history. But there's also something kind of stealthy about it. I mean, about Michael Bloomberg and, and this kind of petty authoritarianism, which is, you know, if you're a fiscal conservative, that means that you don't like tax and spend. You don't think the state should be taking taxes out of people's pockets mm-hmm. and spending it on social programs. This says it's not really fiscally conservative in the sense that he's fine with taxing people and using that, but it's through stealthy ways of finding them for little behavioral things rather than being able to make a democratic argument and say, listen, we want to invest in new infrastructure, like fix New York's kind of pretty crumbly metro system and we're going to tax you for it and you'll get this and it's because it's a public good. And it, instead it evades that. It's fiscally punitive. Yeah. I mean, as... as fiscally punitive, socially punitive. Yeah. That's Michael Bloomberg. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, the fiscal becomes moral, as as the, the writer puts it, as Matt Perkins puts it in the in the article. And yeah, it's it's taxes on poor people to change their behaviour is fine. Taxes on rich people for other uh, ends not fine. So yeah, I think um, the way that it kind of, I guess, or the the, the conclusion that he draws um, that this is kind of the ideology of the corporate boardroom, I think, is put really well. People are reduced to budget figures. Um, and what matters, and this is a quote, what, what matters is that you sit up straight, put down the Big Mac and get ready to maximise your contribution to GDP, your own circumstances and desires be damned. And this is something which it does strike an end of history note, I think. Yeah, technocratic efficiency. And the last line is brilliant, in particular, practical. <laughs> yeah. Are the Democrats, this is the quote from the piece, are the Democrats really so desperate to be Trump? that they would nominate this little mechanical pencil of a man. <laughs> Another characterization which I liked is comparing him, without naming him, but Mayor Quimby from The Simpsons, mm. uh, which I think is, is great. And uh, any meme makers out there who are listening to us, get on that one. Well, we need, we need... I, I can't remember who, who put it but, but on Twitter, but it was very accurate. He's, he's running against Sanders. He's not running against, against Trump. This, yeah. is, this is the ultimate, I guess, um, goal of his, of his self I mean, it's an entrepreneurial campaign. You know, yeah. he's he's getting out there. He's putting out his message, which is hopefully going to repulse everybody. This is a bit of an aside, but I mean, I don't know if you guys saw Noam Chomsky. Uh, someone wrote into Noam Chomsky asking, "Dear Professor Chomsky, what would you, you know, between Trump and Bloomberg, who would you vote for?" He said, "No, absolutely, Bloomberg. We have to get Trump out." And it did make me think, like, if I were faced with that choice, and I'm not because I'm not American, and you know, whatever. Uh, there's also other options such as not voting or whatever. Um, that you can say, say what, 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 what? Say it. I mean, say it. I'd probably vote for Trump rather than Bloomberg. Yeah, I mean, because, because Trump is more destructive. Two reasons. Trump is more destructive in terms of just throwing a bomb on the political class. So th- there's at least that kind of subversive element. And two, Trump probably, probably would start less wars than a potential Bloomberg president. And on that very flimsy basis, you'd have to go plump for Trump. So this is the Trumpist podcast now. <laughs> it's also it's also telling though that Chomsky that you know particularly somebody like Chomsky who's um, you know intelligent and obviously smart and incisive in in many ways is still so desperately wedded to the politics of the lesser evilism. So someone who's a self-professed anarchist, someone who has been radical and heterodox for so long, someone who is so orthogonal to mainstream American. Politics, left of center politics, and even left wing politics in America. He probably uses words like ortho- orthogonal. Even he probably uses words like orthogonal, and mm. yet he still he would still consider five dollar words. There. He would still consider uh, he would still consider Bloomberg over Trump on the politics of the lesser evilism. Mm. So we we have a we have a, a, a game to play, which is taken from McSweeney's. Do we want to do this uh, this now? Who said it? Just go, just go, just yeah, do, do okay. a couple, do a couple. Okay, so, uh, and listeners should definitely check this out and see if they can get them all right. But who said it? Mike Bloomberg or Lucille Bluth? Um, Lucille Bluth being the, uh, the, matriarch, the matriarch of... Uh, of, Arrest- the Bl- of the Bluth family in Arrested Development, so kind of a Bluthberg. So test us. Okay, <laughs> some of them, um, some of my favourite ones, unfortunately, it's, it's you must be able to get. Um... So, who said this? 95% of your murders, murderers and murder victims fit one MO. You can just take that description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. That was Bloomberg. That was Bloomberg, because, yeah, yeah that, was, that was reported on quite a lot. Um, <laughs> so, 
Um, well, don't give it away by laughing in advance. Sorry, they're all they're all funny. They're all good. Um, I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. <laughs> that's, that's, Bloom- that's I think that's Bloomberg. It was Bloomberg. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Last last one. Um, <laughs> today you're seen as a piranha. If you, uh, today you're a piranha if you're seen having coffee with somebody from the other party. In many cases. I think that might be. I think that might be Lucille Bluth from like one of the later later seasons, season four, five, season no, five. I think. Bloomberg. No, this is difficult because season the later seasons of Rest of Development are not are not canonical, so you don't have to watch them. Um, but no, that was Bloomberg again. Um, but yeah, check, check this. Out. I, I, I think they should, should have had you know how much could how much how much can an election cost a billion dollars? That's for one for the fans. Yeah. Uh, anyway, should we move on to the next article because it also touches quite directly on. The kind of not so very democratic primary process and all the rest. Oh, that's good. The not so very democratic primaries. So this is a piece that was published in um, the Washington Post by a um, political scientist at Marquette University, whose name is Julia Azari. She. Uh, so what was interesting? I mean, it caused a lot of uh, ruckus. Over wait, 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 wait. But tell, tell us the title and the title yeah. and the, the so title was also changed. Which I was is getting telling. To that. So originally, a couple of days ago, the title of this article was called "It's Time to Give the Elites a Bigger Say in Choosing the President," and then it was changed more recently to be called what? What's it called now? It's time to switch to preference primaries. A much, so, a much less, um, a much less edgelordy <laughs> kind yeah. of title. Just, just hiding the elitism in the one cream. <laughs> or clearly giving yeah. elites more say in choosing uh, op-ed headlines. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it's, uh, I mean, I wouldn't call it an interesting piece, at least not in the conventional, straightforward sense. Mm. It's a very technocratic and fairly dry piece uh, where you can see the the banality and pointlessness of political science used to tremendous effect in explaining different models for how primaries may function better. But the essential, um, beneath the the wonkery and the technocratic uh, model, the essential message is essentially that, that to convert the primaries away from this competitive process, which uh, replicates the presidential election itself on a mini scale, and to transform it into a way in which effectively, according to the author herself in the text, where she says that everyone can play their allotted role effectively. Mm-hmm. So this kind of essentially functionalist, this functionalist vision where the voters play their role in um, providing guidance to the elites and the elites play their role in filtering what the voters want and everyone kind of remains stable in the mm-hmm. given hierarchy and the elites are in a clearer and stronger position by which to administer and broker deals and to ensure that the process is more stable, more effective, more efficient. The whole tenor of it is um, that of harmonious technocracy, effectively. What's striking, the other thing, I mean, the other thing that's particularly striking about it as well is that as far as I can understand, what she's suggesting is also that they no longer be attached, and I think I've read this right, that the primaries would no longer, be, in her vision, the primaries would no longer be attached to particular political parties, but that all voters could participate in these primaries. So that it wouldn't simply be a way of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party selecting their own um, nominate, nominees through their own internal processes, but rather that all voters could participate, so that it becomes a less adversarial process in which different competing ideological visions for society can be tested and played out, but rather that it becomes a mechanism of filtering uh, 
social consensus effectively upwards and from voters to elites. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a bit of a tough time reading this in, in the middle part because it was not really clear. There was a lot of a lot of words and not much meaning. But as, as far as I could, could pass it, it did seem that the result, her suggestion was that the results of the primaries would be public but not binding. So there would be, um, what's, what, what's that phrase I'm looking for? Advisory, there would consultative. Be advi- there'd be, yeah, yeah advisory. I mean, we, we, we might, may or may not have had some elections like that in the past few years. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's... it's, uh, it's like Brexit was non-binding, that's weird. I mean, that <laughs> it may or may not have been, I couldn't, you know... Possibly couldn't, couldn't possibly comment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's unbelievably technocratic. It's like... Here's here's an here's a very complicated, very wordy way to to make um, to make it so that elites can choose who runs against whom. And as you said, just you don't want politics in a political process. That's the last thing you want. It's so. What I think is interesting about this piece, and there's a number of different pieces like it, which have come out in recent times, is um, the what we see effectively is the formal character of certain kinds of arguments made at the end of the end of history. So we get the attempt, particularly by certain intellectuals and academics, to revive technocracy, to try and justify it and to try and conceptualize it in a pure form. So effectively, it's reviving Blairism, it's reviving the new Democrats of the Bill Clinton era, but stripped of the uh, therapeutic shell and the uh, cheesy Blairite grin and all the kind of effusiveness and um, and the populism of those yeah, periods exactly. as well like it, it because it's set up against populism it's like just pure technology yeah and, so exactly more, so more the, nakedly anti-democratic no, so no the therapeutic babies, no yeah, babies being kissed yeah the therapeutic populism of that era is stripped away and it's purely formal technocracy so it has what i mean and when it has an owl of minerva quality what i mean is that it's a re- they retrospectively understand what that era was about and they're no longer able to, they're no longer able, but the very attempt to justify it shows how completely bankrupt yeah. it is. So they only understand it at the end of that era. Yeah, they only really, we, they understand, they the, understood. The knowledge is only at dusk. Yeah, what they want, yeah, we, what they wanted, the kind of technocratic rule that they, um, that they long for and that they envisage, they can only understand retrospectively. And the very, the very act of articulating it in this change context mm. um, under um, Trumpism in the U.S., shows the inability to properly legitimize it and that it can only be put forward in this incredibly dry, wonkish yeah. sense, which can't be justified in any sense that is politically convincing. Well, yeah, I agree with that one. I was trying to draw away from this and try to find something significant to say. I think it's... Uh, the, the American part, I think it's important to highlight the fact that the American two-party system, one, it has like various legal constraints against third parties. So it's the, that system is very much locked in mm. and that they're not organic parties. I mean, they're not organic emergences of the populace which mediate between people and the state. They're really products of the state. And so you need to, and, and that gives them a weird, so trying to reform them, I'm like, but what are they, you know, you could say to, about the Labour Party in Britain that, okay, it is, what is it in its essence? It's meant to be a Labour Party that represents the workers of the country, da, 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 or various other, you know, sorts of parties around the world. With the US ones, you can't really go, okay, but what are they essentially? Let's go back to their history and find out. I mean, they have completely swapped positions in many places. Mm-hmm. The, the Republicans, which are seen as, you know, th- certainly throughout the 90s and 2000s, a party, especially of the South, of like reactionaries, whatever, 
is complete reversal of what it used to be, which was the party of finance and industry in the in the northeast. I mean, so they, they, these parties don't can't really be said to have a kind of original essence which can be recaptured. So any any reform of them, I guess, would be sort of abstractly technocratic. I don't know what they're what they're what they're trying to get at. I guess you it's know. Also, I mean, it's striking. I think what's striking about primaries and what's particularly pernicious about them is just how heavily regulated they already are by the state. So the idea of integrating using legislation to reshape primaries, so which is to say, right, so that parties' own internal mechanisms for deciding their own internal uh, procedures for their candidates, for election, for their leaders, will be controlled directly by the state. And it seems mm. to me this is the thrust of what she's trying yeah. to do, yeah. is to enhance that integration effectively between civil society and the state so that the state has more shaping of the political process within parties themselves, when in fact, of course, parties, if the point of um, primaries is that civil society and political interests within civil society can be articulated independently of the state, that they should be formed without any reference to state control or being shaped by the state at all. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you should collapse them further into each other, that they should be more kind of effectively regulated. Well, but it's interesting because the Democratic and the Republican Party have undergone a process of, of, of sorting in the past kind of 30 years. So they used to have a lot more, for example, uh, conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans who would find themselves in similar places or even overlapping to the extent, you know, basically there was much more overlap between the parties. And recently they've become more ideologically homogenous. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the Democrats in the center and the, and the Republicans becoming a, a right wing nationalist party in many, uh, in, in many cases. Um, and so this would seem to be an argument to reverse that sortion process, sortion, sorting process, and uh, and and kind of make the parties more catch-all once again. Mm. Um, well, I think it just it's an interesting um, article, maybe less for the solution that it um, provides. Although you know, as we've discussed, that is the state party relationship in America is is interesting. Um, but just for the mask off quality of the headline and the like. Uh, another line in it so Trump is proof that uh, nomination shouldn't be too democratic um, so it really just shows how um, the political the pundit class are really worried by the threat of Bernie Sanders and they're pretty much prepared to um, to junk you know any junk the parties to get to, to avoid um, Sanders but I think the Interesting thing will be if we have Sanders versus Trump, just to see how melted the WAPO brains uh, get. Um, And if there's anything left at all. More knobs. More knobs, please. Yeah, right. So uh, the third article, I guess, offers a contrast to these uh, only vaguely democratic proposals or vaguely democratic candidates in the case of Bloomberg uh, to talk about democracy in a more fundamental sense and its implication with freedom. So this is an article in Jacobin by friend of the podcast, Alex Gurevich. Bernie Sanders was right to talk about wage slavery. We should talk about it too. Uh, this, uh, I actually should give a shout out now. Uh, Alex Gurevich uh, will hopefully be on the podcast uh, in the coming months talking a little bit more about uh, Bernie and Bernie's promise of freedom, uh, which we look forward to to talking to him about that. Um, in this article specifically, uh, it basically refers back to 19th century, uh, what Alex Gurevich calls the Labour Republicans, but who constantly put the argument that about freedom in the workplace, basically, that 
you might be free to work where you want to work, but when you are in work, you are uh, in the dominion of uh, your boss and your boss determines where and how and what, what you produce. Um, and to refer- and that arguments were often made making reference to slavery, to actual chattel slavery, and say how unfree that was and say that actually wage labor, which is formally free, actually was substantially unfree in ways that appeared similar to slavery, albeit not the same thing. Um, even to the extent that, and this is one of the interesting things, I think, that white racist workers mm-hmm. would say, we need more freedom at work because we can't, we should not be treated like blacks, basically, because that's mm-hmm. like how you treat slaves, which, uh, you know, of course, that's just a way of, as the American class, working class has always been divided between blacks and whites, have leveraged, whites leveraging themselves up and pushing blacks down to gain a greater degree of freedom despite still being the working class, proletarians, subject effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's fascinating because the lesson that certain people take from this historic example is, well, that just shows that, you know, deplorables are always racist and uh, that it's just a basic argument against racism and to call wage labor wage slavery is just a way of saying we white people shouldn't be treated like black people which is completely the wrong way around and and Alex Gurevich makes reference to the Daily Beast which effectively makes this argument that uh, treats freedom as a question of racial privilege rather than trying to take up the argument for a thoroughgoing notion of freedom which should be available to everyone Yep. Uh, and having freedom in work, uh, and he ref- and so the hook of this article, which is where I should have started, but I, I forgot to do so. You can come back. I can come to back it, to, like it, to it, which is that Bernie in the nineteen seventies made this argument very clearly about workers in Ver- Vermont are all effectively wage slaves; they're just serving people, and that making a thoroughgoing argument for freedom in work, um, and that there are elements of this strand of. of arguing for freedom through democracy, freedom through equality in Bernie Sanders' campaign. And he does it with regard to healthcare, for example, which I think is essential and really important. And if it were, if Bernie Sanders' pitch were simply, we should have better social services or more, you know, more democracy or whatever, more equality, you go, yeah, fair enough. I like that. But what makes it potentially very radical is the fact that he argues this point about freedom, freedom through equality, freedom through democracy. Mm-hmm. So this is my disagreement, I suppose, with, um, I, or at least, well, I disagree with what, what you just said, Alex, because it's not what Bernie is saying now, but what he said in the 70s. And what Alex is saying in the piece is that we Alex should be Gorovich. talking, yeah, what, sorry, what Alex Gorovich is saying in the piece is that we should be talking more along the lines of Bernie in the 70s. And implicitly he's saying, I think, we should be talking, Bernie should be talking more along the lines that he did in the 70s rather than talking the way that he is now which is to say more of a corporatist vision of um, you know, the Green New Deal, state spending, more social services, uh, more uh, fiscal, uh, less fiscal restraint, less fiscal moderation, less of the Bloomberg technocracy, and more, uh, a more generous state, effectively. So I think it's breaking. It's not what the pitch that Bernie has now isn't consistent with at least the idea that's implicit in the I don't think it's not speech I, from the 1970s. I don't know if it's not consistent. I, just, it, it, I think I take your point. It might be a watered-down version of what Bernie was arguing in the 70s, mm-hmm. but those strands are still very much there. And Alex Gurevich has written elsewhere precisely about this. And we can talk to him actually directly about it rather than we'll necessarily to, debating it now. But. We'll have to, because I think it's um, it's one of my concern, you know, one of my disagreements with the piece as well, I think is the fact that it uh, draws a line from 
19th century labor republicanism, some of the most uh, sophisticated and grandest of America's in America's own indigenous political tradition on the radical left, and draws implies at least that there's a single connecting thread that runs straight from the 19th century through the 1970s to the Bernie campaign of today. Um, and that if, if I mean, I think if to clarify, I think it would you know, be better to criticize Bernie for not talking enough now as he did in the 70s. Um, and that seems to me the weakness of the piece, that if we are to talk about it, if we are to talk more about the way it was in the 1970s, what, what Bernie said in the 70s, we should also be willing to criticize Bernie now. And I don't yeah. think there is enough about um, uh, the idea of freedom from domination as the core of Sanders's proposal. I don't yeah, see it's that. A, it's a... It's a I mean, if it were phrased in that way, it's a very radical conception of freedom, freedom as non-domination, because then it's not just freedom in the workplace, but unfreedom in the workplace mean, means you're unfree in total because you're, you're dominated in, in a really important area of your life. And that's a, that's a kind of classic Republican idea. And to move that into, a, into the Labour context, as the Labour Republicans, as, as Alex Gordon did, it raises really serious questions about what, what is emancipation and how do you achieve that? And I think this is one of the one of the really nice things about the article. And I always find it more difficult to talk about articles that I fundamentally agree with a lot of than ones that I disagree with. But I think the this idea of of how you um, how you emancipate people from a condition of of wage slavery is is requires a really fundamental reorganisation of society. So just to give examples to our readers about um, the kind of domination in the workplace that. Alex, yeah, this is good stuff. That Alex Gorovich mentioned. Well, I mean, it's not piece, good stuff, it's good examples. Is, um, say, control over whether or not you can go to, um, whether when and how you go to the bathroom, the infamous and notorious cases of workers being forced to wear um, diapers in order to limit their bathroom breaks, the degree of monitoring and surveillance in Amazon work warehouses where every movement effectively is um, monitored, surveilled and controlled in order to ensure greater efficiency, ma- employer-mandated drug testing, um, these kinds of... The, yeah. the and, and even in the land of free speech, the United States, where employees' Facebook posts are monitored and you might be sacked for what you say mm-hmm. out of work, which is, I think, the most, in some ways, the most egregious example just because it runs contrary, not even to kind of social ideas, but to basic liberal ideas. I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's a, it's a really good, those illu- illustrations, people have surely experienced different versions and maybe not as extreme as the most extreme, but the fundamental condition of being subordinate to your employer, being monitored, being tracked, it does, it, that is what um, unfreedom feels like. It's, it's, there's a, a case which he highlights of somebody feeling so nauseated and full of dread, they're crying in their car almost before going into work. And I think, I think that that lack of autonomy, we you know, may all have felt that in various various workplaces, and that socialized condition of subordination is obviously different to legal individual ownership in the case of chattel slavery. But it's 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 not it's no bueno. It's not it's not <laughs> ideal. Well, sorry, <laughs> I could have ended that in a bit more of an inspiring way. But I, just but just one thing that this one something. thought that this provoked because. Uh, I mean, listeners may be aware that there's this kind of ongoing debate about the PMC, right? The professional managerial class. We've discussed it a lot on this podcast in various episodes. Um, but the fundamental political debate there is, can the middle class, specifically the professional managerial class, be an ally to the workers' movement? Um, and here, I think the question of freedom and work is actually quite apposite or rather kind of a bit of a crux point of this. 
as the kind of petty bourgeoisie has become proletarianized, basically as someone who was an independent doctor, for example, or uh, someone who was a scribe or something and now works in a big office, um, or a small shopkeeper who's now can no longer be, have a shop and works in a as a salesperson in a big company, um, they have also themselves been more increasingly subject to domination at work, right? Because before you had your own shop and it was a lot of hard work making the balance, book, balance the books and whatnot, but you didn't have anyone telling you what to do. Now you have a boss telling you what you do, but you might be middle management now, or you might have people to dominate over. At the same time, that's allowed the professional managerial class to get maybe a little bit more freedom in work than workers in an Amazon warehouse, obviously. Because also, you, also to get a taste of dominating other people. Freedom, exactly. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's a it's good... more domination of others. I well, think. exactly. You have domination great. of others and you have certain benefits, right? So you yeah. you get flexi time, you get some fucking bullshit wellness classes, which you're... You can sell it. You can get other people to do the shit that you don't... And you get lots of HR bullshit, bullshit, which is much more soft gloves than the actual... Yeah. George. Anyway, but you get you get more you get more soft gloves approach to domination, right? So you get rather than what rather than like rather, hard gloves. Well, rather than having like being have having made to walk sixteen kilometers and yeah. on a clock taking things off the shelves, you know, you're at your desk and whatever, and you get your you get loads of social control. And you have to fill in a timesheet, but you also get HR offering mm-hmm. you know fucking free yoga classes or whatever, some bullshit like that. Um, which puts, again, the, the, the kind of professional managerial class in an ambiguous position because on one hand, it also, as everybody know, who works in an office will know that like you also hate that shit. So you may, that might make you ally with the working class, but you also have that taste of domination. So it might make you ally with your boss. So, you know, that it, it's an ambiguous, uh, an ambiguous uh, situation. I think this question of freedom at work and this article specifically highlights how that kind of how we that can to, yeah out. we need to we need to talk more about this republican traditions in marxism as well why are you why are you looking like film made a face film made a face this is good stuff you know the, like to what extent was Marx a Republican? There is no Republican tradition in Marxism because Marxism is Marxism. Um, uh, okay, well, we'll, we'll that, that's that foreshadows a, a debate we'll have on yeah. another episode. I mean, you have to come up with more than that, otherwise, if you just say that one thing, we're not going to have a very long, yeah, a very we'll, long we'll episode. Debate more, we'll debate more. Okay, so I think we should wrap up here. Uh, listener, patron, thank you for subscribing. Uh, we hope you're enjoying these three articles. Uh, I think you have been from your comments, but uh, please do let us know. Uh, let us know on Twitter, Facebook at BungaCast or on the Patreon page as well. And tell your friends uh, if you think they would like this or you think that uh, they would dislike it and you want to annoy them. Also do that. Actually, please do that. That'd be great. Okay, that's it for us from Sao Paulo, Brazil. Exceptionally this time. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.